0: and the crime, and the gangs, and the drugs, this American carnage stops right
1: now. Oh, shut up. Well, I don't know why I came here tonight. That's why. I got the feeling that something ain't right. No, it ain't. I'm so scared in case I fall off my chair. And I'm wondering how I'll get down the stairs. To the left
2: meet us to the right. Here I am stuck in the middle with you. Yep, yes. I'm stuck from in from Pacifica
1: with Radio you. in Los Angeles. This is the Bradcast as heard on KPFK 90.7 FM in LA. Up in Oregon on KYAQ on the Central Coast and Queso in Cottage Grove. In Lancaster, Pennsylvania on WLRI, in Maui, Hawaii on KAKU, in Columbus, Ohio on WGRN, in Palinville, New York on WLPP, in Grand Rapids, Michigan on WPRR, in New Orleans on WHIV, in Gallup, New Mexico on KNIZ, in Concord, New Hampshire on WNHN. Fayetteville, Arkansas's KPSQ, Seattle, Washington's KODX, and Minneapolis, St. Paul's AM950, KTNF. We also stream coast-to-coast and around the globe every day on the internets on the Progressive Voices Channel, Netroots Radio, Indie Media Weekly, FYI Nation, Sandler.com, Radio Free Brooklyn, GDPR, Revolution 99, Workforce Rising, Detour Talk, and many other fine affiliates... Blanketing Planet Earth five days a week, I'm Brad Friedman, your friendly investigative blogger, journalist, troublemaker, muckraker, and all-around swell fellow says me from bradblog.com. Thank you very much for joining us today, and oh, hey, happy anniversary to us. (laughs) Yes, today is our 14th anniversary, Desi Doyen, wow. of uh, troublemaking and muckraking at bradblog.com and here on the broadcast and the Green News Report. So, uh, my, th- my well, congratulations to you, Des. And we'll start you. with that. Thank you very much. I will, uh, just the fact that we have survived this long, that we are still blogging and broadcasting and uh, muckraking and muckraking, raising, uh... Uh, and frankly, just still alive after this past year (laughs) that alone is a victory so my thanks right off the bat to those of you who stopped by bradblog.com slash donate to help us celebrate uh, our 14th anniversary now heading into our 15th year of trying to stay on your public airwaves to report the stuff that so many in the corporate media just don't seem to have time to cover or to cover accurately or to cover with the context and the focus that it needs to help make our electorate better voters. Yes, to help all of you and me and Desi become better voters because we know more stuff. That is the mission or should be the mission of the media. Unfortunately, it's largely to you know make money for these large media conglomerates in most cases, but not here.
2: And their advertisers.
1: Yes, that's correct. But not here. Uh, For example, uh, while the bulk of the media over the past day or so have been focusing on who won or who lost in the momentary government shutdown over the weekend, or was it the Democrats and and Chuck Schumer, was it the Republicans and, and Mitch McConnell and Donald Trump? Well, you know, there are actually people, actual people, who are affected by all of this. Uh, not the least of which are those 800,000 dreamers who may find themselves deported to a country they have never known beginning in uh, just just over a month or so time. I can't even imagine what it would be like to be one of those folks right now watching this uh, madness, this circus in D.C. go down. But, uh, you know, who, who's the big political winner out of all of this? The Dems, the Republicans? Never mind that. We will keep on our mission as long as we can here with your help at bradblog.com slash donate. Uh, And to that end, towards that mission, we'll be joined momentarily by the Marshall Project's justice reporter, Justin George, for a, a look at the very real effects of the Trump presidency on criminal justice. Now, one full year into his first term. And yes, I say first term and run a chill down my own spine with the (laughs) hat in the bargain. Yeah, Uh, because as unpopular as Donald Trump right now is, he was also wildly unpopular before his 2016 election. But somehow he managed to barely squeak out an electoral college victory anyway. And yes, that could happen again in 2020. One of the reasons, uh, as as Trump just admitted before airtime to uh, to the AP, uh, that he he now seems to be prepared to block DACA reform altogether for those eight hundred thousand Dreamers, is that uh, as AP is now reporting, Trump says immigrant plan will let protections for younger immigrants morph into citizenship in ten to twelve years. So, God forbid, uh, any of these folks would be able to vote in 10 to 12 years. Remember, they've been living in this country now for 20 or 30 years already. Well, we can't, you know, have that. We can't have them voting. We can't give them full rights of citizenship. Let's put that off another dozen or so years, if at all. And, of course, those folks aren't the only ones that Republicans are very, very worried about being able to vote in this country, about having the right to vote in this country. But on that front, we've got some some good news for a change here. Oh, good. Imagine that.
2: (laughs) Yes, please.
1: At least mostly good news. Florida voters will decide this November whether to restore the voting rights of the vast majority of about 1.7 million Floridians with felony convictions who have completed their sentences. The Orlando Sentinel first reported on Tuesday that Floridians for Fair Democracy, led by Desmond Mead, had successfully gathered more than 799,000 certified signatures, to get the issue on the ballot this November, sur- surpassing the necessary threshold by tens of thousands, and they are still counting. They may well have over more than a million people who have signed on in support of this initiative.
2: That's really encouraging that nearly a million Floridians stepped up and said, yes, felons should have the right to vote restored.
1: Imagine that. That's yeah. fantastic. Actually, it's potentially huge because we're talking about, yeah, almost 1.7 million new voters in the state of Florida, if... If and this is still a big if, if this ballot measure passes in November. Now, I generally don't like the idea of putting rights of any sort onto the ballot. Uh, you know, for example, remember when states were putting up same-sex marriage bans onto the ballot as as voter initiatives. Uh, rights should never be up for a popular vote, frankly. Uh, but I got to say, given the years that uh, some of these groups, groups like the sentencing, uh, sentencingproject.org, that they have been trying to bring to this radical injustice in our country, in states like Florida. Remember, these are these are people we're talking about people here who have already served their time, these one point seven million uh, former felons, and they have—they've already been released. They've served their time. They've served their uh, their their parole. And and frankly, if they lived in almost any other state other than Florida, they'd be allowed to participate in elections and yes, vote for president and member of co- uh, members of Congress and so forth. But because they live in Florida, one of just four states that permanently ban felons from ever being allowed to vote. Because they live in Florida, for whatever reason they choose to do so, they are just shut out of our democracy completely, with virtually no chance of participating in elections. Also, you'll recall that uh, Florida, uh, Florida's uh, previous governor, Charlie Crist, he was then a Republican, he's since become a Democrat, but he had actually changed the policy to restore voting rights to former felons, or at least make it easier for them to restore their uh, their voting rights. But then you had wingnut Republican Rick Scott take over. He immediately reversed Christ's policy on this. He went back to making it virtually impossible to get your voting rights in sto- uh, restored in Florida, leaving it essentially up to the whims of Rick Scott, Governor Rick Scott, whether former felons may or may not be allowed the privilege even though it's not supposed to be a privilege it is supposed to be a right you know leaving it up to the governor by himself virtually to decide whether these folks can participate in their own democracy now the measure would not affect those convicted of murder or sexual offenses according to the uh, according to the sentinel though i should uh, note that frankly it should affect all convicted felons, even those serving jail time, in my opinion, because nobody who's more affected by our criminal justice system than those who are serving time under it, even for stuff that eventually is no longer a crime at all, like, you know, marijuana policy, marijuana-related crimes in states where voters or lawmakers have since decriminalized the sale and the use of pot, and yet you still have people serving time in jail for using it and selling it. Desmond Mead of uh, of Floridians for Fair Democracy told the, uh, the Sentinel that uh, the moment I found out that this had been approved for the ballot, tears just started streaming down my face. He says as someone directly impacted, I cannot quantify the level of emotion moving through me right now. Floridians make up roughly a quarter of all Americans who have permanently lost their right to vote. Due to a past felony conviction, according to the ACLU, well, nearly a quarter of, wow. all of all of those who have lost their rights permanently. They're all in Florida, the swing state of Florida. The uh, the, the group was uh, one of several to support Florida's voting restoration amendment. An ACLU press release on Tuesday said Florida has the most restrictive policies in the nation with respect to limiting the ability to vote for citizens who have paid their debts to society. They note it is only one of four states with a lifetime ban on voting. In addition to Florida, uh, Kentucky, Virginia and Iowa shamefully permanently bar convicted felons from voting unless they are granted clemency. Although the um the uh, governor in uh, Virginia who just left, the Democratic governor who just left in Virginia, did uh, was able to restore one by one a couple hundred thousand former felons, their rights. Um, last year, as Meade, who is a black former felon, and Neil Voltz, who is a white former felon, headed up this grassroots process of collecting nearly one million signatures in Florida to get this on the ballot this year, comedian Samantha B highlighted their efforts and the arduous process by which those Floridians with felony convictions can attempt to try and regain their rights in Florida, which under current law in the Sunshine State rarely works. Here's Sam B's piece.
3: Ever since losing the popular vote, President Trump has had his underoos in a wad about three million people who voted illegally. They don't exist. What does exist is six million people whose right to vote has been taken away. To learn about them, I went to Florida, where retirees and democracy go to die. Florida, the land of sunshine.
1: Florida leads the nation in denying the right to vote to one specific group. Felons. 10% of all Floridians and nearly one quarter of its African American population denied the right to vote.
4: Right now in Florida, this policy impacts over 1.68 million people.
3: And Desmond Mead is one of those people. A recovered drug addict released from prison in 2004, Desmond has since put himself through college and law school. Show off. But unfortunately, he lives in one of the only states where you're banned from voting for the rest of your life, which in Florida could be up to 15 more years.
4: It doesn't matter if it's a first degree or third degree. You could lose your rights for life over something as simple as driving with a suspended license.
3: In Florida, felonies can be things like buying weed, tampering with an odometer, or disturbing a lobster trap. So basically, spring break. And once you lose your rights, it's nearly impossible to get them back. Because after you finish your sentence in probation, there's a five to seven year waiting period before you can even apply, which is followed by a nine year backlog. And then you have to get your ass all the way to Tallahassee for a hearing at the clemency board, where the governor asks.
1: Give me your pitch. Give me the pitch. What's your pitch that we should do this?
3: Oh, it's like Shark Tank for your civil rights. There's Head Shark Governor Rick Voldemort and his three Republican friends, and they give former felons only one shot.
1: I'm not a bad guy. I'm a good guy.
4: And I am very sorry.
1: Clemency is is there's no standard. We can do whatever we want. So I'm going to deny restoration of civil rights. I congratulate you on what you've how you've turned your life around. It's all denied.
3: Tough call, but at least it was arbitrary. The board rejects over 90% of people who appeal, which makes you wonder.
4: Am I ever allowed as a citizen here?
3: For that answer, I asked Roger Clegg, a former member of the Justice Department and the leading voice on why ex-felons should not have their civil rights restored.
1: People who commit serious crimes, against their fellow citizens are not qualified to vote.
3: Right, serious crimes.
1: If you're not willing to follow the law, then you can't claim a right to make the law for everyone else.
3: But you can't ever vote for crime.
1: Well, sure you can. What? Lots of states have referenda and ballot initiatives and things like that where you actually are making the law.
3: Come on, Roger. It's not like felons are going to be organized enough to get a referendum on the ballot.
4: I'm working to get a referendum on the ballot. That (laughs) referendum would restore the ability to vote for former felons after they have completely served all portions of their sentence. The quicker you help a person reintegrate back into their community, the least likely they are to reoffend. You know, you give them a stake in the community, it's better for everyone.
3: Sounds like a win-win, but these Republicans are still intent on denying a voice to over a million and a half people in a swing state. Oh God, they think this is about politics, don't they?
1: A lot of Democrats are pushing for this is because they think it will help them you know, win elections. Had felons been allowed to vote, Al Gore would have won the presidential election because he would have carried Florida.
2: Interesting.
3: Oh, they're worried Democrats will take all the ex-felons for themselves.
4: This might surprise you, but not all felons are Democrats. There are conservatives who have committed crimes too, as well.
3: Really? Republicans want this too? We do. (laughs) Oh, God.
1: I'm Neil Holtz. I'm a former felon from Florida. I'm a Republican and a conservative. Have
3: you been sitting there the whole time?
1: I've been here the whole time.
3: I'm so biased, I can't even see Republicans anymore. Neil was convicted of corruption 10 years ago as part of the Jack Abramoff lobbying scandal. Now he's working with Desmond. So did you two cook up this idea together while you were in prison? Uh, no, I didn't serve any time in prison. Right. White felony. Sorry. <laughs> 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 it's not easy to make people care about felons, but Desmond and Neil are willing to talk to anyone, including a big boy with his very own show. Cause this
1: affects my life too. I'm gonna have to live under the president
3: that you choose can't imagine what that would be like and these two have to reach a lot of floridians if they plan to make the 2018 ballot you're only two people how are you going to get 700,000 people to sign this
4: we're very confident because of the grassroots nature
1: of what we're doing we meet Wherever. people at the coffee shop we meet mm-hmm. them at the church we meet them in their businesses
3: coming to a ballot near you you can download and sign Desmond and Neal's referendum by going to miamirights.com. And if you aren't a Florida voter, I bet you know someone who is. And she's been dying to get a card from you. <laughs> we'll be right back.
1: That was Sam B. last year. And in fact, that effort by uh, by Desmond Mead and Neal Voltz was apparently successful. This will be on the ballot this November in Florida. Uh, the the law, as it stands, as they mentioned there, uh, deeply affects communities of color. More than 21 percent of African-American adults in Florida have lost their right to vote due to a felony conviction uh, compared to just 10 percent of the state as a whole. And if you look at uh, Desmond Mead there, if you note that he finished his time, he served his time. He was done in 2004. And then he went to uh, to college and graduated, and law school and graduated, and yet he still cannot vote 14 years later. He cannot even vote, apparently, on this initiative that's going to be on the ballot this November. It's just incredible. So... Uh, You know, how hard does Florida make this in, you know, make it not just to restore your voting rights, but for the citizens to get anything onto the ballot? Well, in addition to requiring nearly 800,000 signatures, which they got now, um, which they have achieved, this measure in order to pass this November will need support from 60 percent of the state in order to amend Florida's Constitution.
2: Wow, that's that's a huge margin.
1: So, yeah, 60 it's got to get 60% uh, or that's it. It does not pass and all of this effort was for naught. So that's an effort we will keep our eye on as the year moves ahead. And uh, good luck, Florida. Just another reason for everyone to get out to the polls in 2018, if you have the right to do so. Even with the irony that those most affected by this ballot measure, those one point seven million in Florida, they can't even they can't even vote on this at all. So it's everyone else deciding on their fates. They won't be allowed to vote on whether their voting rights are restored or not. So this is going to be a heavy lift. But uh, if it's up to the Trump administration, of course, it'll be an even heavier lift this November as the Trump Jeff Sessions Department of Justice is hoping to increase our mass incarceration problem in this country, which the Obama administration had been in the process of trying to reverse during his final years in office. That story and a look at year one of Trump Justice is next here on the broadcast with the Marshall Project's Justin George. I'm Brad Friedman. Don't go away. <laughs>
0: I
3: bought the law law I the law, won. I the
2: law, and the
1: law won. Yeah maybe maybe not we'll see welcome back to the broadcast Brad Friedman from bradblogjot.com Okay well reality check one full year now into the Trump era nightmare It took several years of uh, Barack Obama's presidency, but as journalist Justin George noted at the Marshall Project website just last week, President Barack Obama was a late-blooming activist. By the end of Obama's second term, George writes, his administration had exhorted prosecutors to stop measuring success by the number of defendants sent away for the maximum taken a hands-off approach to states legalizing marijuana and urged local courts not to punish the poor with confiscatory fines and fees. His Justice Department intervened in cities where communities had lost trust in their police. After a few years when he had earned the nickname Deporter-in-Chief, Obama then pivoted to refocus immigration authorities on migrants considered dangerous and created safeguards for those brought here as children. He visited a federal prison. He endorsed congressional reform of mandatory minimum sentences and spoke emphatically of the Black Lives Matter movement. He also nominated judges regarded as progressives. But in summarizing Obama's successor's first year in office the anniversary of which took place just last weekend during the brief government shutdown. George argues that in less than a year, President Trump has demolished Obama's legacy, at least on the criminal justice front. In its place, writes George, Attorney General Jeff Sessions has framed his mission as restoring the rule of law, which often means stiffening the spines and limiting the discretion of prosecutors, judges and law officers. And under President Trump's America First mandate, being tough on crime is inextricably tied to being tough on immigration. Now, that is something that we all were reminded of once again over the weekend in that short lived and now uh, postponed to a little over two weeks from now government shutdown fight, which was ostensibly over a fix to the Deferred Action for Childhood Arrivals or DACA program that President Obama had created to protect some 800,000 children of immigrants from deportation and that Trump has now reversed with a stroke of his pen, along with a deadline set for March 5. Before those kids, many of them here for decades, knowing no other country than the U.S. their whole lives and many now with U.S. citizen children of their own now, they will be targeted for deportation beginning March 5 back to a country where they may not even speak the language unless some sort of deal to protect those so-called dreamers can be struck. All roads in Trump's rhetoric and Sessions' rhetoric sort of lead to immigration, says Ames Grouert, as quoted by Justin George. Grouert is an attorney at the Brennan Center for Justice's justice program and a previous guest on this show. He worries that... That that's going to make it even harder for people to try to advance criminal justice reform because it's all bound up in the president's mind, in the attorney general's mind, as an issue that they feel very, very passionately on restricting immigration of all sorts. Yes, including legal immigration, as Trump's comments about uh, blank hole countries just last week. Yes, that was just a week ago, has made abundantly clear. So uh, he has had some success over this past year, uh, certainly on the immigration front, certainly in frightening people on the immigration front. But as far as criminal justice goes across the U.S., has he really had the impact that he thinks he has had over this past year here to discuss? What, uh, what he describes as the ways, at least nine of them, that Donald Trump has transformed the landscape of criminal justice just one tumultuous year into his presidency, is the Marshall Project's Justin George. He covers crime policy and politics as the Washington correspondent for the Marshall Project. He previously reported for the Baltimore Sun. Where his work as a journalist embedded with the local police department covering the internal investigation into the death of Freddie Gray, made the Baltimore Sun a Pulitzer Prize finalist. The Marshall Project is itself a Pulitzer Prize winning nonpartisan nonprofit news organization dedicated to covering the U.S. criminal justice system. And educating and enlarging the audience of people who care about the state of criminal justice in America. Justin George, welcome to the broadcast, sir. Thank you, sir. I really appreciate you joining us. You've got uh, this uh, ve- very detailed, uh, almost 3,000 word piece, I think, uh, on this at the, uh, the MarshallProject.org. And even that is really just a summary of how Trump has changed. Uh, or has attempted to change the American criminal justice apparatus over this past year. And I want to get into some of those points where you think he has had the most impact to date. But since you start your your piece with a contrast with uh, President Obama and what appeared to be a change of course in Obama's later years as president, let, let me start there for a second, if you don't mind. Sure. I, I think that Obama finally did... Uh, I agree with you here that he finally did begin to change his outlook on all of this, but it was late in his presidency. I actually felt a, sort of a palpable change after the Supreme Court gutted the Voting Rights Act in 2013. Uh, you may have a better read on it than I, but, but given what we now know, is it fair to say that Obama's efforts, as laudatory as they might have finally been uh, in those uh, closing years, that they were ultimately too little too late? Or were the changes that he made enough to survive a Trump presidency as you see it?
0: No, Brad, I I think you are right when you say that. I mean, you have to consider what was going on during his presidency. You had a recession, and you had him pushing the Health Care Act. Mm -hmm. You know, those things, obviously, with the Congress, uh, the partisan as it was, uh, were just two monumentally difficult things sort of to do. And I think, uh, eventually, uh, as time went on, you know, uh, people such as Eric Holder, um, Loretta Lynch, uh, started getting to his ear, and I think, uh, he started working on these things. But yeah, it was, it was towards the end of his presidency, and, um, you know, everybody had hoped for a pretty broad, uh, sentencing Reform Bill mm-hmm. uh, that just stalled in Congress. Uh, that was sort of one of the key pieces of legislation that President Obama had hoped would pass before the election. and Instead, sort of got mired in politics like everything else.
1: Yeah, wh- why did it take him? Obviously, y- you mentioned the, uh, the 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 economic meltdown and all of that, and health care. But otherwise, why why do you think it? Why did it take Obama and his AGs, uh, Eric Holder and Loretta Lynch? So long, really, to even move toward more progressive policies. Were his hands tied politically? Was he more conservative than he was given credit for, or or was it events themselves that uh, you know the continued videos of these outrageous police shootings and the years of uh, GOP intransige- intransigence on uh, on immigration reform and so forth? Is that what finally began to move him to the left?
0: You know, I think it's a little bit exactly what you said, a little bit of everything there. Um, But I I think that the climate, you have to take that into, um, you know, obviously into mind. When did um, these sort of situations with uh, police misconduct, alleged, uh, you know, police abuse, police uh, killings, um, you know, those things sort of kind of cropped up in 2014. And um those issues kind of i feel like uh... they encompass a lot of things when it comes to criminal justice reform and i i think that uh, it wasn't just uh... president obama who sort of turned that way i think it was the public too was uh... becoming more and more aware of these uh... things whether it be sort of uh... prisoners in prison or uh... you know sort of uh, policing and whether uh, police were sort of the warrior cops out there they were out there protecting people uh, so a lot of these issues just sort of steamrolled. Um, and I, I think, you know, you, when, you, when you think about it, I think that the climate was just sort of ripe to sort of um, start, start talking about these things and seeing if, uh, you know, policies could kind of go with uh, the way the public was sort of thinking.
1: And I suspect it might have uh, had Clinton ended up winning uh, instead of Trump. But you argue that uh, Trump has now uh quote, demolished Obama's legacy on all of this in his first year. Uh, we'll, we'll hit some of the specifics, but is it fair to say that he has um, demolished that legacy or has he attempted to demolish that legacy? And I ask because, you know, other than, uh, and I may be wrong on this, which is why I wanted to have you here, but it seems to me that other than on immigration and on the courts, um, Much of what he has attempted to do has so far been blocked to varying degrees at various levels by the courts, uh, to a lesser extent by Congress. I think, for example, of Jeff Sessions' announcement last week reversing... uh, Obama's hands-off policy on federal marijuana, law enforcement uh, in states where it's been legalized. That new directive, just taking that one uh, that one case as an example, that new directive, according to the advocates that I've spoken to, seems to have landed with a thud. It's being vigorously opposed by Republicans in Congress uh, and seems to be just another example of an attempted Trump policy that, you know, sounds uh, demolishing, but hasn't really gotten anywhere. Well,
0: Brad, I think that like, you're hitting on a very good point, and that is that, you know, when you think of criminal justice reform and you think of uh, the number of people who are in prison. It's not, you know, federal penitentiaries that they're in. They're out there in the state prisons. Mm -hmm. And, um, you know, you're talking about local law enforcement that has more of an uh, impact on your everyday life. Um, And immigration is something that is sort of a local issue. Um, So I think that the states have fought back uh, vigorously and has shown that they want the pendulum to keep going that way. However, when it comes to the small little fiefdom that is sort of uh, the federal government, Uh um, you know, in those policies that affected sort of, uh, you know, the federal portions of criminal justice reform, he has indeed torn those apart. And while you're not quite seeing the impact of those, um, you know, immigration numbers, you know, you look at the actual deportations that are going on, they're actually uh, lower than they were um, under President Obama. <laughs> right. But. But many are saying, you know, again, you're you're looking at this as just a snapshot. I mean, we're talking about uh, policy is driving the pendulum the other way. It takes a few years for things to catch up. And mm-hmm. as long as he's in office, you know, nothing is going to change uh, towards the direction that reformers want.
1: You list uh, nine areas uh, where Trump has transformed the criminal justice landscape. Let's hit a few of those. Uh, specifically, you argue that he has changed the tone First of all, when it comes to the rhetoric around criminal justice, hard to argue with that one, uh, but uh, how has that had a real-world effect, uh, according to your reporting?
0: uh you know the two the two uh elections that i cited uh was the virginia governor's race and the alabama uh governor's race and i think everybody knows how that turned out uh you had two candidates there who were using sort of trumpian uh rhetoric and they did not win right um so i you know it while that is swirling around it's important to you know point out that they did lose the difference here is that you have this sort of rhetoric trickling down to, to the states and trickling into Congress. And what it's doing is basically putting—it's essentially stopping uh, progressive sort of— um, discussions that were going on. No more is it safe uh, for a Republican congressman to say, you know, we need to restore these felons' rights. Uh, you mm-hmm. have sort of, you know, people such as Senator Mike Lee, uh, you know, Senator Rand Paul, and others who will, you know, who are, who are brave enough to take that stand. But when you're talking about um, sort of uh, the senators and the Congress people who this isn't a key issue for them, um, and if you were going to take a poll on them, they might be a little cautious about touching that subject because mm. they're afraid that uh, they'll wake up the next day and a tweet uh, will be pointed for, pointed at them from the White House. Mm. So uh, I think that's the effect that you have here, is that it's just put uh, any sort of... Uh, movement towards reforming the prison system at a standstill—a
1: a, a chilling effect. On the other hand, in, re- right. in in response to that, you sort of see what we what we see uh, now in Florida this past week, where they've got a new uh, initiative on the ballot coming up for a vote this year to actually restore rights to former felons, at least voting rights to former felons. Uh, you know, and I'm wondering if we will see more such. Uh, ballot initiatives, people stepping up, citizens stepping up. Uh, in other words, to to counter what we're seeing from uh, from the White House and how that has uh, changed the landscape. Uh, you say that Trump has put the mass into mass incarceration, and this was an area where Obama's Department of Justice had made some. Real progress, it seems. Uh, And it was welcomed on both the right and the left, you know, from the ACLU and and Democratic senators like Cory Booker to the Koch brothers on the right and Republican Senator Rand Paul. How has uh, Attorney General Jeff Sessions and Donald Trump sort of reversed that momentum from a more just uh, system of justice uh, to what we what we are now looking at?
0: Yeah, I, I think, you know, previously the policy was if this was just sort of a drug, a federal drug car, crime that had occurred, uh, and it was a low level offender, a low level crime, uh, prosecutor were sort of, uh, allowed to sort of look the other way. Uh, there are mandatory minimum sentences that are out there that could apply, but in those cases, prosecutors were given sort of discretion not to charge, uh, the defendants in those cases. Well, what's changed is uh, Attorney General Jeff Sessions uh, has said, we're in charge uh, exactly uh, the laws that Congress has sort of put in place. We're not going to ignore anything. And so he's mm-hmm. asked uh, essentially as U.S. attorneys to charge to the utmost power uh, whatever uh, crime you may have been alleged to have committed, uh, the worst one, Um, there is what prosecutors are going to go after. It doesn't matter if it's a drug crime or anything else. Um, Now, again, Brad, uh, you know, you've brought up these good points. We don't know what the numbers show. We don't know if, in fact, the line prosecutors that are out there across Mm -hmm. the United States have been doing so, in fact. We don't know if, um, you know, many more drug crimes are being prosecuted right now. And we will be really curious when those numbers sort of come back to see what's been the effect um, so, again, that's something we're going to check on, but that's the instruction. That's right. the instruction that has been given.
1: Yeah, and it will be interesting to see. I guess that may take another year or so to get some data on that to find out if prosecutors really are doing as uh, as Sessions has instructed. Uh, all right, uh, on immigration, you say he has made that synonymous with crime. Uh, can't argue on that, certainly. He has tried to do that. Um I'm wondering if it has worked or if it is actually, in, at least in the process of, of sort of uh, backfiring, making calls for immigration justice actually more popular, sort of the way he helped make Obamacare more popular in his ridiculous opposition to it. Uh, he, so, well, your thoughts on that. How, is there a pushback there or has he been more successful in equating immigration with crime?
0: Yeah, I think that he's been more more successful in that this is an area where, uh, you know, the general public sort of doesn't know um, a lot that's going on and the federal government sort of has a lot of power. Um, in sort of uh, the way ICE operates mm-hmm. and the sort of hiddenness and secret secrecy that goes on. And all of a sudden you find out, you know, you see these story after story of uh, people who've been here for 40 years who are facing deportation now. So, in effect, I think that it's sort of a realm that um, operates sort of without... The public finding out until the last second maybe possibly until it's too late i do think that there is you know support sort of you know for the reverse of it but the the, the thing is that um you know the, the federal government obviously is going out full force looking to enforce those laws you have um You have these private prisons that have popped up, ready to detain people. You Mm -hmm. want to try to get information on what's going on. Very difficult to do so. You want to get information about people being held on the border. Very difficult to do so. So, you know, in a way, a lot of us sort of uh, don't know exactly what's going on. And so I think that gives sort of uh, the Department of Justice a little bit of an advantage there.
1: Uh, you're right, and we won't have time to hit all of these. I will uh, link over to your uh, article at themarshallproject.org. Um, but uh, Justin George, I want to hit just a few more here. He's been a boon to for-profit prisons, uh, and 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 here there there really was hope at the end of the Obama administration. Uh, people may remember that uh, memo uh, near the end of his uh, administration from the Justice Department calling for an end. To private prisons and the private prison industry, to a certain extent, uh, people may not remember that memo was actually written by Sally uh, Yates, who was made famous later when she was uh, fired by Donald Trump for refusing to uh, enforce his uh, his Muslim travel ban. But the private industry, private prison industry, was really on the ropes. It seems, uh, it seemed at least at the time that they were becoming to a quick end. But now that. Uh, That has now turned 180, turned around under Trump and Sessions, Justin?
0: It has. I mean, you saw their sort of stock prices surge as soon as... you know, Attorney General Sessions sort of reverse that order. I think they've leveled out a little bit right now. But I think what's interesting was something that Lauren Brook Eisen uh, told me from the Brennan Center, who has written a book about this. And that is what she's studying is that, you know, you're not seeing a lot of these detentions occurring um, in the border areas in places like, you know, San Antonio, Mm -hmm. or El Paso, places like that, as much as you are seeing a sort of increase that's going on. In the center of the United States, mm. and what 's interesting about that is that you are more likely to find um, immigrants who have been here for a longer time who have stronger roots with the community and are likely being held for a longer period of time um, and that 's obviously money to some of these companies mm. um, so it's just sort of a you know a, some would say very much that the you know rhetoric that has been used mm. has scared people from coming across the border illegally but uh, I think that the effect that it's having is, is a chilling effect, like you said, in that um, you know you have ICE officers who are going through sort of the heartland of America and looking for people to detain.
1: Uh, one of the beats I know that uh, you follow closely is uh, police, local policing. you write he has unleashed the police. Uh, and you note that uh, he rolled back this uh, so-called 1033 program that we've covered quite a bit on this uh, program over the years, um, which, you know, essentially gives surplus uh, military goods uh, to to local uh, police, to even, you know, campus university police uh, who have uh, grenade launchers and armed vehicles, uh, you know, like an army essentially locally, and uh, that was something that Obama had begun to put the curbs on, and has Trump just simply reversed all of that, and now the uh, the weapons and the arms are flowing once again from the Department of Justice to our local law enforcement?
0: Yes, it's less checked, uh, put it that way. And things such as, you know, large sort of uh, heavy uh, armored vehicles, uh, things like bayonets, things like that, are actually uh, easier for police officers and departments to get. Now, on their side... Um uh, you know, let's move away from sort of uh the you know most extreme examples of you know armored tanks and things like that uh you know, I did a little bit of reporting along with a colleague of mine um and we looked at sort of what are you doing with bayonets? What are they for? and you yeah. find out that they're not you know the traditional bayonets that you're thinking in your mind, but actually just sort of knives that. Uh, police departments who are struggling with uh money are using you know to stick in their uh officers' trunks and are being used to cut seat belts and things like that and car accidents things like that and then you have uh you know police chiefs who would tell you you know we are facing you know sort of the incidents of terrorism um you know mass shootings that are taking place, whether it be Las Vegas or orlando and if you look at the firepower that they are facing. You know, it's kind of, uh, you know, very difficult to say, well, I don't know that you need military sort of ballistic um, armor, or you need this or that. Um, and that's the reply that you get from these departments. However, when you look at sort of the message that sends communities that are having a tough time trusting police, you know, they do look like an occupying force at times. Especially, you know, that's exactly what instituted this policy was the images from Ferguson of the local police department mm-hmm. going through uh, crowds of
1: protesters. I'm wondering, you know, has has Trump's rhetoric served to embolden local police to increase uh, racial disparities in policing? I know that that's certainly been uh, his effort, and we hear different things about whether local police actually do support uh, Donald Trump and his policies. Are we beginning to see any evidence one way or another uh, of of how they have directly uh, affected local uh, law enforcement in that regard?
0: I don't think you're seeing evidence yet, but I can tell you this. What it has allowed them to do is sort of ignore being as uh, cognizant of those issues. Uh, They can kind of go back out there and sort of saying, you know, we're just going to police, you know, crimes. That's all we're doing here and not looking at exactly sort of where that's taking place. Mm. Uh, why that has been sort of why, um, you know, so many police officers are being deployed to one area, whether that should be the case or not. You know, these sort of issues are not being looked at anymore. Um, and basically, you know, police can sort of go about the way that they've done things in the past instead of sort of evolving to use more data and, and to, to look at sort of things like racial disparities and issues like that. Mm. You know, there are plenty of, of big, Uh, police departments that are reforming on their own, just like you had said with other issues. You know, there is um, a lot of... We even ran a story this week that I hope people read uh, about a sheriff who, in Florida, who actually is a reformer, um, but is also a law law and order sort of kind of law officer. So it's not that there isn't that taking place, but certainly there is no more, we have to do this or we're going to face a consent decree or court order to Mm. change uh, they're sort of just allowed. there to sort of doing policing as they've always known how.
1: Those consent decrees sort of uh, served to put a lot of uh, a lot of uh, local uh, police forces sort of on notice. Uh, did it not that if they weren't uh, careful, that there was somebody watching at the DOJ? Is that a, is there a sense now that oh, the DOJ is is hands off? You guys do what you have to do at this point.
0: I don't think that there's any doubt about that, and I think that's pretty much kind of been said, um, or at least indicated, Mm -hmm. uh, from the attorney general himself. Now, he would say that we are certainly looking for rogue cops, and they are prosecuting rogue cops, but they view it as sort of like the bad apples of the bunch, rather than uh, there's a systemic problem that's Mm -hmm. going on here that that essentially allows these apples to spoil. Um, So absolutely, uh, there's less sort of department-wide monitoring that's taking place.
1: Uh, Finally, he is, uh, and here's a point where I don't think anyone could possibly argue, anyone on the right, left, or anywhere else, that Donald Trump is remaking the U.S. court system uh, with a record number of federal judges being uh, appointed now by this Congress in his first year. I suspect that's going to keep going as long as he is in office, uh, and I suspect it's going to be something that we won't see the real effects for Uh, for a number of years, and and years even after Trump is out of office, because these uh, federal judges get lifetime appointments.
0: That's correct. Uh, You know, I mean, you have more than 100 federal judgeships that remain to be filled by the end of... uh president trump trump's term and H- then how many a, a hundred you say a hundred That's yeah, correct wow. more than a hundred i'm sorry yeah and then you have you know obviously two justices who are in their 80s uh two supreme court justices who are in their 80s mm-hmm. um and it's possible if, if either of them retire that trump could get at least you know one more chance to appoint a supreme court nominee
1: At least. And as if your story wasn't chilling enough, we'll just end it on uh, (laughs) that chilling thought. Justin George of The Marshall Project. Check out his uh, report on Trump Justice Year One, the Demolition Derby. You can find that at themarshallproject.org You can also follow Justin on the Twitters at Justin George. And you can follow the work of The Marshall Project as well on the Twitters at Marshall Proj. That's Marshall, P-R-O-J. Justin, really appreciate your uh, your work and your joining us today, and I hope you'll not mind if we bother you again in the near future to join us again. That's all right, Brad. Looking forward to it. Thank you, brother. Okay, a quick break, and we're back with our closing few minutes on the Bradcast, and uh, maybe some sleaze. Should we get dirty? Getting dirty right after this break. I'm Brad Friedman. Don't go away. <laughs> do they do love dirty laundry don't they welcome oh, yeah. back to the broadcast Brad Friedman from bradblog.com uh we are very serious here we don't have enough dirty laundry on this show does not Maybe, enough salacious
2: no, details no
1: we don't yeah I, and the same thing's true at bradblog.com we take everything so serious you know we we focus on issues that matter things that actually Matter that the rest of the media ought to be covering. I remember years ago uh, at BradBlog.com, you know, we were covering a lot of really important stuff, a lot of serious stuff. And you would think, you know, important breaking stories. And, uh, you know, it occurred to me, well, you know, maybe we'd get more eyeballs if I uh, created an item with the headline Girls, 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 Sex, Sex, Sex. (laughs) And it did got a huge oh. to this day it's still one of the most popular items that Brad blog that people find on on the googles
2: and i think i recall you also put kim kardashian in a green uh, news report d- post and that got a lot of eyeballs I too i wouldn't
1: surprise yeah <laughs> uh, so you know we we don't cover nearly enough apparently sleaze and sex and rumors and and or frankly even the red meat sort of right left politics stuff uh, we tend to cover issues that, you know, might actually help voters become a more formed elect- electorate. I know. Crazy. What was I thinking? So let me take a break from that for a moment. <laughs> uh, you know, e- even as we covered that sleazy story of Trump's alleged affair with a porn star on yesterday's program, we didn't cover the sleazy part of it. We covered the potential criminal and legal issues related to it. the The campaign finance violations and so forth. Uh, if you missed that, by the way, with Paul S. Ryan, the uh, the good Paul Ryan uh, of Common Cause yesterday, he had filed these uh, complaints this week with the FEC and the DOJ about that $130,000 apparent hush money payoff to porn star uh, Stormy Daniels that may be in violation of the law.
2: Election campaign finance law. Just
1: before the 2016 election. Yeah, you can go download that for free at bradblog.com or your favorite uh, download uh, iTunes podcast site, whatever. Uh, but anyway, because we need more gossip and sleaze on this show, let me uh, let me do some here, even though I've got a reason to stoop to this level. But here's some sleaze. I think uh, Melania Trump may be leaving Donald Trump soon. Really? Yeah, I think so.
2: Why do you think it that? It could
1: happen. Well, uh, on Monday, apparently... According to CNN, Donald and Melania Trump marked 13 years of marriage. It was their anniversary on Monday, but there were no signs of celebration at all. In a whirlwind news day focused primarily on the government shutdown, the first couple exchanged no public notes of endearment. The day came and went with no tweets, no Instagrams, no mention of a private dinner on the president's schedule, which is usually what happens when uh, presidents have their anniversary while in office. And uh, in the evening on Monday was announced that the First Lady Melania would no longer be joining the president on his trip to the World Economic Forum in Davos, Switzerland. That, according to her communications director, who cited, quote, scheduling and logistical issues and declined to provide further details.
2: So she was going and then she wasn't because something cropped up. Yeah. You
1: know what cropped up? So to speak. Stormy Daniels. (laughs) I think that's what cropped up. I think she's not happy about that. I think that that uh, affair uh, took place reportedly just four months after Melania gave birth to her son. To her and Donald Trump's son, uh, uh, Barron. Uh, I think she's mad about it. That's what I think. Now, again, there's a reason I'm mentioning all of this. But let me just note that the notoriously private Melania Trump says CNN has not made any public statements since January 12. When news of the possible payoff from her husband's lawyer to the porn star Stormy Daniels to cover up an alleged affair was first reported by the Wall Street Journal. She has not said a word publicly since then. She did, however, depart with uh, Trump later on that same day to Mar-a-Lago for a long holiday weekend. But she was not spotted with him during any of the the two evening dinner host dinners that were hosted by Trump. One with uh, former New York mayor Rudy Giuliani, another with House Majority Leader Kevin McCarthy. Melania did not show up to dinner. And on Saturday, She uh, Melania Trump marked the one year anniversary of uh, Donald Trump's inauguration. That was on Saturday that you think would be a big deal. How did she celebrate? She tweeted an image to mark the occasion, but it was an image that did not include Donald Trump. Hmm. It was a picture of herself with her arm linked to a military escort at Trump's inaugural swearing in ceremony. Hmm. She posted that the past year has been filled, quote, with many wonderful moments. But she did not mention the president by name. Interesting. So I'm just reading into all of this. I'm just flat out rumor mongering here.
2: I would say maybe, you know, you could be right. I wouldn't be surprised. However, I would also be not surprised if there were, say, an ironclad prenuptial agreement that would disallow her from embarrassing him in any way mm. in the timing and choice of how to exit that relationship.
1: Well, thank you for enjo- uh, for joining me in this sleazy uh, rumor mongering <laughs> and speculation that we so rarely do here on the Brad blog. But I, I do it for a reason. While the Trumps didn't say anything about each other on their anniversary, it's our 14th anniversary today. <laughs> no, not Desi and Mine. Uh but the uh the Brad blog, bradblog.com's 14th anniversary. We now head into our 15th year Of fully
2: independent
1: news. And I'm not em- embarrassed to say it. I'm not embarrassed to talk about it, to tweet about it, <laughs> to let you know about it to yes, uh 14 years uh we have taken pains over these years for good or ill to remain fiercely independent in all that we do that has uh a, that's a feat that has not been Any easier over the uh, over the years within this particular political and media landscape, Uh, but we continue to try. And to that end, yes, I ask you to consider a birthday present, an anniversary present to the Brad blog. Uh, At bradblog.com slash donate so that we can try to continue uh, doing all that we have been doing for these past 15 years for as long as possible, particularly as we head into another exceedingly important election year. Uh, The last year or so. uh, it has been difficult on a whole bunch of levels. Uh, it's taken a toll, I think, for for both Des and I, frankly, uh, emotionally, physically, economically, as I'm sure it has for all of you as well. So it's been a rough couple of years, but if uh, if y'all can step up just a little bit as you have in the past, I hope that we can keep going and make it through our 15th year, if possible. So please do consider becoming a subscribing member at BradBlog.com slash donate uh, with a uh, monthly pledge of any amount you like to help us uh, try to stay on the air, though uh, generous one-time donations are greatly appreciated as well.
2: Well, you know, like you always say, this world ain't going to save itself, but we can all do it together.
1: We can all do it together, and uh, we can continue doing it here on the broadcast uh, with your help. So, uh, got to get out. Uh, congratulations to us all for lasting 14 years. All right. Desi Doyen, our producer, thank you very much for thank all you. of those years and for today as well. And thanks to my guest Justin George of TheMarshallProject.org and to you for spending a portion of your day or night with us. If you missed any portion of today's show, download it for free anytime at bradblog.com. Drop me email if you like. I'm bradcast at bradblog.com. And on the Facebooks and the Twitters, please stop by and say hello. You'll find me at... The Brad Blog. That's it. Until we meet again, I'm Brad Friedman. Good luck, world.